Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, good evening. That was fun. I've never been able to do that before. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. You can find the Commonwealth Club online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook and Twitter, and on the club's YouTube channel. My name is Carrie Lozano, and I'm a journalist and documentary filmmaker, and I'm a film funder these days at the International Documentary Association. And it's such a pleasure to have this conversation tonight. It's a little personal. I'm roughly the same age as public media, I recently realized. <laughs> and public media uh, has Means been... Means you're in- golden. <laughs> <laughs> public media has been really integral to me as a citizen and also to me as a journalist and filmmaker. And so it's a real honor to moderate this program. More than 50 years after the establishment of the Public Broadcasting Act, which set the foundation for PBS and NPR, the media landscape has changed in ways that its founders could not have imagined. Yet the vision for a non-commercial broadcasting system that takes risks and addresses the needs of the public has endured. With local news shrinking and trust in news at an all-time low, How are PBS and public media affiliates like KQED adapting to serve communities? And how can stations and audiences respond to the attacks on a free press? To discuss the future of public media amidst great technological, political, and environmental upheaval, it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce our speakers. Paula Kerger is the longest-serving president and CEO in PBS history, having joined PBS in 2006. Among her accomplishments are the pop culture phenomenon Downton Abbey on Masterpiece, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's critically acclaimed The Vietnam War, the documentary Hamilton's America about the Broadway smash hit musical on great performances, Freedom Riders on American Experience, and award-winning children's programs such as Daniel's Tiger's Neighborhood. Ms. Kerger is regularly included in the Hollywood Reporter's Women in Entertainment Power 100, an annual survey of the nation's top women executives in media, as well as Washingtonian Magazine's Most Powerful Women in Washington. Michael Isip became KQED's 10th president on April 10th. Mr. Isip has almost a quarter century of media experience and has played a critical role in KQED's growth and transformation into a 21st century multimedia organization. He joined KQED in 2001 as an executive producer in television and has since served in a number of senior-level roles, including senior vice president and chief content officer, as well as executive vice president and chief operating officer. His most impactful contribution to KQED is something I hope we'll talk about tonight, is reorganizing the content division away from distribution platforms to a structure of multimedia teams in news, arts, science, and education. This restructure facilitated greater collaboration across KQED and increased digital content and services. John Boland is President Emeritus at KQED. He served as the organization's President and Chief Executive Officer from 2010 through March 2019. Before returning to KQED, he served for four years as the Chief Content Officer of National PBS. Prior to his tenure at PBS, Mr. Boland served in several executive positions at KQED for more than a decade, and also created the role of Chief Content Officer at KQED in 2002. It was the first such position in public media. At KQED, he led a strategic transformation 
from a traditional public broadcasting service to a 21st century public media organization that combines mobile, social, and online media with robust digital radio and television broadcasting. He's been a newspaper publisher and owner, a senior executive with two major international marketing and communication firms, and publisher of San Francisco Focus, which is now SF Magazine. He's also a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Please join me in welcoming our guest tonight. So I think we all here know that there have been dramatic changes in the media landscape in the last decade. And uh, I want to hear from each of you and from each of your perspectives about what public media and what KQED have done to kind of change with this very quickly shifting landscape. What have been the changes? What have been some of the challenges? Paula, you're looking at me, so I think we're start. <laughs> and actually, I want to clarify something from that beautiful introduction you did. So um, you nicely credited me with Downton Abbey, but actually the truth is the real person who should be credited for Downton, with Downton Abbey is the man to my far left, John Boland, <laughs> because John was the chief content officer at PBS when we had the opportunity uh, to acquire uh, Downton Abbey, and uh, we actually briefly debated not doing it because we had made a commitment to upstairs-downstairs. And uh, John said uh, to me, well, you know, there's this, you know that guy that did Gosford Park? He has this project, and it's called... It's, uh, he couldn't even remember the name of it. He said, it was like Gosford Park Project. And he said, they've got Maggie Smith. And he said, what do you think? It seems like a lot. I think we should do it. What do you think? And so I said, John, if you think we should do it, we should do it. So he is the person. A lot of so, people take credit for that. There John. we go. John Bull. <laughs> so pivoting from that to uh, the environment that we're in now. I, I mean, look, it's um, things change every it seems like every week, you know, you look at the the new announcements of what Disney is now bundling mm-hmm. as their new streaming service. Uh, Netflix was obviously, um, you know, one of the great transformative um, uh, players in the last few years. And now there's, you know, their stock fell because they lost subscribers because of the loss of the office and friends. I mean, this is a crazy time as people are looking to um, have cable, cut cable, assemble their own uh, curated experiences through lots of streaming packages, go back to broadcast television with just a few years ago people said was dead. So, I mean, it's just a period of, of just significant change. And so speaking from my perspective, running the national organization, you know, our goal is to try to negotiate as many uh, relationships as we can. We just announced uh, uh, two weeks ago that we've uh, struck a deal with YouTube TV for all of our stations to stream. So KQED will be streamed on on uh, YouTube TV as an option. So that wherever you decide you want to look for public television content, we want to make sure you find your station, not just Ken Burns, as beautiful as his work is, as much as we love him. We want to make sure that our stations are in all those places. And so I think that that, you know, we could spend a lot of time here and people are spending enormous amounts of money trying to figure out who are the winners and, you know, who is going to, you know, fall off the table during this strange time. But I think that for us as a, as a public 
as a public organization, we want to make sure that we meet our viewers where they are. And as much as we want to stay focused on how we need to evolve and we can talk about different platforms we're now on, like, um, you know, the, the, the games that we build for kids and so forth. But I think what we really need to stay relentlessly focused is on the things that we need to hold dear and that need to stay the same. So you made reference to the fact that you are perhaps 50 because this is the, sorry to, Close. sorry to <laughs> more or less do that to you. Less. <laughs> celebrating our 50th birthday at the end of this year. And, um, and the thing is that for the 50 years of our, of our history, we have stayed very focused on creating content of impact, content that makes a difference in people's lives, content that is authentic and that is, is rooted in, um, in truth and with journalistic, um, um, standards that, uh, that really define that brand of PBS. That is what really needs to be the core of, of what we do, even in this very tumultuous, uh, landscape. Thank you. And we'll talk about that because public media remains the most trusted institution in the country. So we'll talk about how you did that. But I, I do want to hear about how KQED, which is really at the heart of much of this trans transformation, right? We have, you know, the Netflix has started here. Apple TV is here. YouTube is here. So I'm curious to hear from your perspectives what that transformation has been like and what the goals have been to make sure that KQED keeps pace. Well, I'll touch upon the challenge and opportunity uh, parts of it, of your question, but I, I just want to start, too, and, and just say this is my first public event in this role, and, <laughs> and I am so grateful oh. to be here at the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> Yay! Uh, because the Commonwealth Club is a great partner, and I'm so thankful for all of you spending part of your evening here, especially on a night where the Bay Bridge series is happening, right? <laughs> no, don't let them know. They may not have known. <laughs> Um, but I also, if I may, I just want to recognize three people because this is a very special moment for me. Um, to the right of me, Paula Kerger, who is truly, you read her background, one of the most respected media leaders. And we cannot think of a better person, stronger person to guide us through whatever change and uncertainty we face. She's guiding more than 350 television stations in the system. And then to my left, John Boland, um, whose place in KQED's history has been to transform us to that 21st century multimedia organization amidst all of this change. And nine years later, we're in this position of strength, which we'll talk about. And someone who's not on stage next to us is Mary Bitterman, who is the president and trustee of the Bernard Osher Foundation, the, the chair of the PBS Foundation Um just a champion for public media and an ambassador of goodness and, of course, former KQED president. So I mention them because I learned how to be a servant leader from the three of them, and I consider them all mentors. And your son. And my son, of course, <laughs> who is not a mentor but actually a boss of me. Um, but let me just build upon what Paula said because there are so many challenges um, ongoing changes in technology, audience behavior, abundance of content and choice, division, polarization, widening gaps. You asked a question about what the biggest challenge is. Um, and it's not just the changes that you talked about that we make on a, a station level, but I want to focus on something that we can control. And that is our biggest challenge is ourselves as public media. And you referenced you know, the signing of the Public Broadcasting Act 52 years ago, 
Lyndon Johnson signs it, establishes CPB and PBS and NPR, talks about the vast wasteland of programming and signs this because he wants media for good. And the challenge is we need to make this our 1967 moment. This digital revolution, what are we prepared to do to adapt and change to serve your needs? Paula said it. It's all about the audience. And we have this wonderful mission, and it's really a shared mission, different iterations across local stations to provide the most trusted, highest quality programming to help individuals be more. We make citizens. That's what we do. But we need to move from the what to the so what. KQED, we talk about a higher purpose, inform, inspire, involve, because an informed, inspired, involved citizenry is the foundation of a healthy democracy and a strong community. And we're going to focus on not just being audience-centric, but being community-centric, building community. And I think about the cornerstones of democracy, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. That's made possible by a free and open media. Strong democracy is only as strong as the media. And that is the challenge. Are we ready to take that challenge and work from a position of strength? And I really believe that this is our time. Public media is no longer an alternative. Commercial media outlets, New York Times, Washington Post, Guardian doing great work. They're talking about trust and quality. Those are our calling cards. And they're focusing on loyalty, but fundamentally they cannot be what we are and what we stand for, public service, public good. So, Thank you. That was, if there was ever a great impassioned plea to become a member, I, th- I think we just yeah. heard it. John Bull, I, I do want you to, to speak to the transformation, though. I mean, I did go back and read the, the act, the Public Media Act last night. I've read it before. Believe it or not, you all should read it. It's, it's not long, but it's really kind of revolutionary. I mean, coming from this political moment, uh, the, the way the country feels so divided right now, it feels like a revolutionary act. Talk about what needed to be done to really make sure that that mandate uh, was being protected in this last decade of, of massive transition. I, I think you're right that the the act really resonates now. And what I think is in this confusing time, difficult time in media and in our democracy, it's really a great time in an interesting way for public media. It's really, a, as Michael said, a moment for us for I think two particular reasons that that reflect what's going on in the world. In terms of trust, PBS is one of the most trusted institutions in the United States above many uh, aspects of our government. And KQED, in every survey we do, the most important aspect that comes back from the audience is that we're trusted, that we've earned that trust over more than 60 years serving the community, and we, we work very hard to maintain it. So having a trusted source of accurate, factual information in the current environment we're in is an incredibly important service. And we found that people come to PBS and NPR stations because of the trust of both the national organizations and their local stations, which are the last locally owned and operated media organizations in almost every community in the United States. And so that's an incredibly important service at a very important time. The other reason that I think it's our moment is the business model, if you want to call it that, or the support model, meaning that what has happened to our newspapers is really a, 
a collapse of the business model in that all of the news and information was supported by advertising and advertising has gone online without the newspapers. What's very interesting about public media is we have a model that's just working great in this environment because it is the people who use the service, the people who listen, who watch, and who go online who actually support the public media organizations in each community and that works. You've, you've helped make it work. And so over these past 10 years, as we've transformed to try to meet your needs, to try to be there for you on every kind of digital de device, as well as being there for you on television and radio, as we always have been, you've responded by coming to KQED as that trusted source. We're in a situation now where KQED has become the dominant media brand in the Bay Area, serving between two and a half and three million people a week. Nearly one out of every two people in the Bay Area, and probably more than one out of every two people in this room, <laughs> uses a KQED service every week, which is really astounding when you think about uh, going back to our roots. And more than 220,000 families in the Bay Area are KQED members sending us support every year. So that's growth of 40% over the last six years. And the reason is those two factors. We are the place you can trust to come for the news and information you need in order to make the important decisions you have to make and to come together with others in the community. And we have a model that allows you to show your support for KQED and make the operation continue without having to, to depend on advertising. And I think it's, it's just an amazing time of, of opportunity to serve. It's nice to hear something optimistic about the news landscape because it's not what we hear. And it is really interesting to think about the fact that you had a business model that was amenable to these changes, which is, I hadn't actually heard it in those words exactly, but that makes complete sense. I want to make sure to try to incorporate your questions as much as I can. And I think this is a good one, uh, especially in a San Francisco crowd. Um, what efforts are being made to include more conservative thinkers, both in at PBS, at the national level and at KQED? And is that a way in which I'm, this is, I'm ad-libbing to your question, but you know, do you think in those terms, conservative or liberal? Well, I think in news, not because I think news is news. And I think part, we could spend this whole panel talking about what's happened in news. I think that, uh, but I think in terms of, of, um, the, um, uh, point of view, uh, that we incorporate, uh, particularly around, uh, public affairs, it's important to have a multiplicity of, of viewpoints. And I think that is, has always been a great strength of public media. If you look back, I mean, we have, um, Margaret Hoover now with Firing Line, uh, really tapping into the old Bill Buckley tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that there is a way to bring, um, and I think this is how we think about, uh, uh, different voices is that there is a difference between putting people around a table and having them scream at each other, uh, which is not what we do, uh, or putting people together and trying to, to, uh, organize it in such a way that you can have thoughtful conversation. I think one of the greatest challenges that we face as communities and as a country is we've lost the ability to sit together and to have different perspectives. I mean, this is where a place like the Commonwealth Club, I think, is so critically important and to be able to talk and listen 
and recognize that actually if you change your perspective a little bit, that's not a sign of weakness. That actually is a sign of, of, of growth. This is how we as a country have come together. And somehow, you know, we, we, you know, we curate the experiences we have. We only listen to news that ref- or, or opinion that reflects our own opinion. And we've got to get back to that place where we have different perspectives around the table. Just to build upon that, we, yeah. we don't think in those terms. And, and I'm looking at Holly Kernan, our chief content officer. You know, a couple weeks ago, after the Gilroy shooting, she sent me an email and said, I, I, I really need to, we need to take care of our news team. And I want to send this email. And she crafted this beautiful email to me. And it was really about what we do and how we do it, just to rally the troops around our common purpose. And I'll, I'll just share some of the highlights, and she described it as the practice of journalism, not the profession, right. not the craft, the right. practice right. of journalism. She said to our staff, what we do is we search for the truth. We hold people, individuals especially in power, public institutions, accountable. And in that search for truth and accountability, we ask questions, skeptical questions, And we even question ourselves, our viewpoints, our assumptions. And to Paula's point, she talked about, Holly in her note talked about searching for multiple viewpoints Mm -hmm. and double-checking the facts and listening fairly and thoroughly. But not only that, but the institutions, the people we investigate, we make sure that they are heard thoroughly and fairly. And we are fiercely, incessantly protective of our independence. And we're very careful and thoughtful about the language we use. So we don't think in those terms. We just think about doing the right thing and finding truth and holding people accountability. And I think when you focus on operating principles and values, then you bring in the diversity of opinions and perspectives. So that's the approach that we take. I think, I think just building on what Michael said, I don't think we try, we try to avoid putting things into this paradigm of conservative or liberal or Republican or Democrat because there's a diversity of voices and opinions in the Bay Area that run the gamut. And if you listen to our radio program forum in the mornings, you hear all those different points of view. Um, I just think it's, it's important to avoid getting into the the them and us and us versus them aspect of it. Right. In terms of, so within the in the media industry, sometimes there's a joke that I'm sure you've all come across, which is like, it's hard to sometimes understand how PBS relates to the 350 member stations, relates to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, relates to Congress. It's a bit mercurial t- to those of us on the outside about how all of this works. But somebody here is asking, you know, how important is government funding to CPB, how important is that to the ecosystem? Um, and this, I think, feeds into the conservative liberal question is, is you know, how do, how do you, when you work so hard to not be politicized and to um, use journalistic principles and to serve the entire country with f- fairness and integrity, you know, how is it that 
PBS from time to time gets pulled into these, you know, uh, political conversations. Well, that is the great mystery. Um, <laughs> but um, the, the way that we're organized, and it is it is a, a little confusing because we have all these different organizations. So the Corporation for Public Broadcasting is, in essence, a quasi-governmental organization. It is responsible for ensuring that whatever federal appropriation comes into public broadcasting is distributed around the country fairly. And that is really their principal purpose. And in fact, that purpose also underscores the fact that another one of the great mysteries is that uh, a lot of people assume that um, the money that comes from the federal government goes to uh, PBS or it goes to NPR. It actually goes out to our stations. And the reason that we fight so hard to retain um, a, the federal appropriation, I mean, it was always envisioned when Lyndon Johnson, we keep talking about Lyndon Johnson tonight, um, signed the public broadcasting. I had this idea of this public-private partnership. And what he's really concerned about is that of access is that here in a in a community like San Francisco, there are a lot of people that support KQED, and at the risk of giving both Michael and and John a, a heart attack, <laughs> you know, if federal funding went away, KQED would not shutter its doors. Right. It would be impacted. It would be significantly impacted, but it would somehow continue. Many of the of the stations that I visit around the country are in small rural communities. Um, would not exist without federal funding. For those stations, a proportion of their funding that comes from the federal government, in some cases, appro- uh, approximates 50%. What is yours? About six, six, six or seven? Percent. So the whole idea is that for those areas that really need the support, that's where the federal appropriation really has outsized influence. And so coming back to the whole uh, question about the controversy of funding public television, pu- funding public radio, I would argue that many of those communities really truly value their local stations, almost like politics. People hate politics, but they love their local politicians. Mm -hmm. It's the same. They love their stations. And I think when people understand that, in fact, the federal appropriation goes to their stations, our, our, one of our largest champions on Capitol Hill is, is, is Tom Cole from Oklahoma. He understands that, um, the outsized influence that, um, OETA, Oklahoma Educational Television Association, has for the people of that community. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we work really hard to try to underscore the importance of the work that we do. And it's why, um, because some people will say to me, Paula, wouldn't it be so much easier if you just figured out how to raise this money and, and walked away? And, you know, as I said, this community would somehow figure it out. Our station in Cookville, Tennessee, that serves Appalachia, would not. And in that community, that station happens to be the only station, not just the only public television, it is the only station serving a community that largely counts on over-the-air television. I, I would just rest with that. I mean, I, yeah. I think that's exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly the case. And, and, and fortunately, I think what happens each year that a president decides to zero out public broadcasting in the budget, when it gets to the Congress, people call their congressperson, people call their senators and say, don't take away my PBS station or my NPR station. And so far, since the 1990s, that has never happened. And let me, let me just add, you know, we would be okay because more than 60% of our budget comes from individual contributors. But we have this conversation often within KQD and among the major 
market station. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we're also an NPR member station. We talk about the responsibility that the major markets have to support the overall health of the ecosystem. So we support organizations like APTS, which is the lobbying group that, and we're there in Washington talking about the value of public media. So we are truly stronger together. Kind of bouncing off of this, I mean, part of what was so fascinating to me about the act is it really explicitly says that you, you know, the idea is, is you create quality content for children, for the underserved, for minority populations. I mean, it's very, very clear. And you've been incredibly successful in doing that all of these years. One question an audience member has, which I know many of us talk about in these circles, is how will you continue to engage younger audiences? And how will public media remain a piece of their lives now that everything is so fragmented? You know, I have young children and they are watching things on the phone or YouTube TV. You know, how do we keep those audiences coming and then keep them around for the duration of their lives. I'm going to answer that, but these guys are been leaders in this space. And so I'm going to let them answer first. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll talk about two things. So I talked earlier about building community and ultimately that's about inclusivity. And for, you know, one of the competitive advantages local stations have had is that we convene dialogue, bring people together And we absolutely can do that on our digital platforms. There is an opportunity to bring in new voices and new ways of telling stories. And just one example of how we're doing this, um, this is the second year doing that we've done this. We had a youth takeover where we literally, for one week, turned over our broadcast distribution platforms to young people. We had our reporters, producers work with these young folks to talk about the issues and news that's impacting their lives and their families. More than 300 students in the Bay Area, right? 20 stories that you heard on Morning Edition on KQD Newsroom Forum. So, and we're going to make that not just one week of the year, but we're going to make that part of our ongoing coverage because this generation, your generation, Cole, is about participating by making. And we have an amazing partnership with PBS. So our education team, it used to be six people, little engine that could, would extend our broadcast program into classrooms and and do workshops with teachers, how to use this media in the classroom. We've more than tripled that team because we want to, our goal is to be the trusted source of media literacy. So it's not just in-person workshops. We're leveraging digital platforms, a platform called KQED Teach, Mm -hmm. a professional development platform, and this is where we're partnering with PBS, where educators can take lessons about how to make information graphics in the classroom. And PBS is using their megaphone to get the word out about this platform so teachers can come to this platform, learn, and bring that to their students. KQED Learn, a similar platform for students where they come into a safe space and they make media and they start from the very beginning, how to ask a question, how to find credible resources, right? So we're involving students and at the same time, we're developing skills like collaboration and critical thinking skills. So really for us, it's all about engaging and having young people participate in media making. And I would say we're, we're getting young people in our audience both in classrooms with great PBS preschool programming on tablets now, 
mm-hmm. perhaps more frequently than on TV. On our radio station, the audience, the percentage of the audience that are millennials is equal to the percentage of the population of the Bay Area that are millennials. I think lots of people are listening to KQED podcasts. We have a partnership with NPR, with PBS Digital Studios mm-hmm. on a series called Deep Look, which is a big hit on YouTube, has millions of viewers way beyond the Bay Area. I think the big challenge, because our model requires the users of our services to support it voluntarily, is making sure they know what they're consuming. Right, and right. where it came from. And I think in this mm-hmm. fragmented market, the biggest challenge is I saw this great program. I engaged in this great conversation. I listened to this wonderful podcast. Do I know where it came from, that it came from PBS or it came from KQED or it came from NPR so that I can support and and have more of that content? And I think we're finding ways to do that. And we're finding ways to solicit support in in a digital environment. But I think the fragmentation, people people sort of know what they've watched, but you'll hear people say, was that on Netflix or Amazon or PBS right. or where did right. I see that program? Yeah. And right. and that I think is a real challenge for us. So I had them go first because the 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 fact is that KQED has been a just a great leader in trying to figure out, and it's been a great partner of ours in, in the initiatives that both Michael and John described of, of really looking for ways to bring people into, young people into the processes as creators, even if they ultimately don't end up as filmmakers. We want people to feel this is, this is public media and, and public really extends to everyone. We have a, we have a very large audience under the age of five. A very large one. <laughs> and, um, and so what we want to be able to figure out is how we keep them engaged right. as, as they age. So part of it, you said your, your children are on YouTube. That's why we need to be on YouTube. We need to think about all the platforms. What John described through digital studios is work that we've done, not to take our, our broadcast programs and put them on YouTube, but work with people for whom that is their platform, people that would have worked in public television 10, 20 years ago, and work with them to develop content that actually is very much public television. It just happens to use another platform. So part of it is a platform, and the other piece is just relevant. Relevance mm-hmm. is is really looking for stories that are relevant to young people. We're, I'm really proud. We just launched a new children's series, Molly of Denali, that Lance launched a couple weeks ago, and it is it has gotten a lot of recognition around the country because it is not only the first children's series that features a uh, a, a native child, but it also was created by a production group. Uh, that came that um, that came from Alaska, and that not only voiced all the characters, but ensured that the content that we were creating was authentic, and that it tell then it told powerful stories. the The pedagogy for this series is all around informational text, so it's everything from reading maps and signs to where do you go for data and information. But because it's located in Alaska, it really gives us a great opportunity to tell a very different story for children that never see their stories reflected on television. And 
it's interesting because um, the number of people from around the country who find the fact that we have told a story that is not well understood, is not well told, is actually the most powerful piece of this series. And so I think if we not only pay attention to the different places where we put our content, and I agree with John, our biggest challenge is making sure people know this is actually coming through KQED, and KQED's relationship with us and that they need to support KQED. But the other piece is that we really have to make sure that the stories that we tell matter and that they connect with people. And if we can do that, then we'll keep this younger group engaged with us. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Well, I think that the in the documentary space, a lot of young filmmakers, PBS is still the holy grail because you're reaching these audiences across the country, because you can reach younger audiences, because you're often supporting a theatrical uh, run for these films, Minding the Gap, which I think was, you know, a huge film for young viewers last year. So I do think that there is a range of programming. And, and, and nominated for an Oscar, I Nominated for an Oscar. It wasn't the first time that, the uh, first time. Um, you know, PBS documentary was nominated for an Oscar and, and endless Emmys as well. Congratulations yep. this year. 47 nom- Emmy nominations, more than any other media organization. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I I do want to put a plug in that one of the things that I think is valuable is that filmmakers know and producers, media makers know that when they put something on KQED, when they put something on PBS, they know how many viewers are going to watch. And uh, I'm a big fan of the digital landscape, and um, I think it's opened up lots of opportunities. But when we put our films there, we don't know how many people are watching. So thank you for making that transparent. And we're in every home free. That's right. And that's the other thing that, you know, again, as people are now discovering broadcast television, um, we are accessible to every person across the country free. And I think that matters. And if you are a filmmaker, if you are a filmmaker, you should be saying this uh, rather than me. Um, <laughs> but the the most important thing is to make sure that that content gets out. And so being able to connect to every person. and the And the other thing is, again, coming back to our stations and thinking about this great space that you're building in your new building. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many of our stations, but particularly KQED, do screenings, bring people from the community in, create opportunities for filmmakers to talk about their work. You know, I I heard as we were standing backstage that Lynn Novick is going to be here talking about College Behind Bars, Mm -hmm. extraordinarily powerful uh, documentary. That's the power of video storytelling. It's being able to tap into that thing that is inherent in in who we are as 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 humans. This this need for us to not only share stories but to talk about them together. And we can do that on public television. Netflix doesn't have uh, a station in every community around this country, and so for our stations to really rally behind the independent film community and the ability to tell stories and to talk about them. And to deepen the impact of those stories, I think is really powerful. And let's, but you know, I think historically we did think about the broadcast 
or the radio broadcast. That's what you were. But now you are also a digital platform. There's, you know, your news team at KQED has, I, I want to say it doubled, but correct me if I got that number wrong. Talk about now what it means for all of you to be a digital platform. So to be available on mobile, to be covering breaking news in a text form, not just the broadcast or not just the radio broadcast. I mean, talk about those changes because there are lots of ways that we can connect with public media and, and it wasn't always necessarily thus. And this is several years in the making. Really, it was John's vision back in 2010 and he wanted us to become a 21st century media organization. As I said earlier, his mantra was, it's all about the audience, which means we need to be available where, when, how the audience wants us. But um, to your question about news, um, he also said at that time, we're going to double down on local because he saw what was happening with the gaps that were being created by the decline in newspapers. And let's, let's talk about that for a second, because it's not just gaps now. They are there are goals, right? Right. Bloomberg about a month ago said that um, the layoffs at local journalism outlets are at the highest level since the recession. A third of major newspaper dailies went through layoffs. Um, in July, a 150-year-old paper in the Youngstown, Ohio, closed its doors. And I, and I think one of the most compelling pieces of research done um, late spring was by Scientific America that for the first time linked the decline in newspapers to the rise in partisanship because when local news goes away, citizens turn to national outlets that focus on conflict and competition. So decline and partisanship. So it's been hard because it's taken us several years. Remember, we have more than 50 years of being television and radio. So we just focused on producing television and radio programs and broadcasting them. And then it turned to we need to produce short-form video and audio mm -hmm. and podcasts. And now it's we need to learn skills such as artificial intelligence and big data and crowdsourcing and SEO, which is search engine optimization and social media. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of stress on an organization, by the way, while we're maintaining our broadcast services. Mm -hmm. But we have no choice because that's what you want for us from us. And our goal really is, and we're going to build upon John's vision, is to become the source and service, indispensable source and service of local news and information for the Bay Area. Everywhere, mobile, immediate, 18 newscasts every weekday, 10 newscasts on Saturday and Sunday, forum, the California report, political breakdown, podcasts like the Bay and Bay Curious. Right? We're going we're gonna to continue to do that. And as a service, again, back to how we do it, service journalism, depth, context, useful, explanatory, so that our audience can be active participants in society and in democracy. And I would say it was driven by, as Michael said, the audience. Essentially, KQED only exists for one reason. It exists to serve the people of the Bay Area. And as long as we can provide a relevant and, and hopefully essential service, then we deserve to to continue to exist. And we need to keep a very close 
contact with the people of the Bay Area to understand just what your needs are. And they've been changing very dramatically, almost on a monthly basis for the last 10 to 15 years. And so that's meant uh, an awful lot of change for KQED. But I think we've, we've tried to to stay in touch and and to make those changes. And part of this was this change in becoming a, a primary source of news and information and arts and culture and science and environmental coverage in the Bay Area. It isn't what we've always done. We really depended on the newspapers for that for a long time. Um, but but we're there now, and, and, and we know you depend on us. I, uh, we obviously had a tremendous bump they call the Trump bump uh, in 2016 in terms of our audience, people turning to us to understand mm -hmm. what was going on and how it would impact us here in the Bay Area. But what I found the most interesting thing was a year later in 2017, in October, when we had the terrible fires, all of those records at KQED were broken. So the mm -hmm. fires attracted larger audiences on all of our platforms than the election in 2016. And what that told me was, well, we've really arrived now as a service people in the Bay Area turn to for local news and information. And that's a huge responsibility that we take very seriously and will continue to try to improve. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'm going to combine an audience question with something that, that follows from that, which is, as we've had diminished newspapers, diminished local news services, that also means the watchdog, the investigative reporting is significantly diminished so that even for newspapers that continue to exist, investigative reporting is very expensive. It's really time consuming, has a certain set of skills often involved. And so that may not be happening even if there's a local paper. So I want you all to talk about public media's role in investigative reporting and in particular what it means to have high journalistic standards, which is an audience question. What does that actually mean? Well, I, I would argue that even in television, I mean, you, we can talk about investigative journalism in print, but I would argue in, in television, investigative journalism has basically disappeared. All of the series on public television, uh, on television that, that focused on investigative journalism are now doing crime stories. Um, and all that's left is, um, I will give some props to 60 Minutes and, uh, and Frontline. And, uh, people always ask me, um, you know, what is my favorite? They think this is an easy question or a throwaway question. What's your favorite show on public television? <laughs> they don't know the risk that that places <laughs> that I will send some producer into therapy for the rest of their life if I don't pick them. But um, the way that I always answer it is is actually I think the most important series that we do on an ongoing basis is Frontline. Um, Rainey Aronson, who is the executive producer of Frontline, is fearless. Uh, she is focused on the important stories of the day, not the, the, um, sensational stories of the day. And, uh, she is not afraid to cover very tough issues. And I think that that is profoundly important unless, and it is a skill and it is expensive, which is why everyone has gotten out of it. And it is dangerous, um, if you do it correctly. And, uh, I think that, and I say that, um, fully aware of what I'm saying based on the times that we're in. And I think that we owe her and the uh, frontline team a tremendous uh, debt of thanks for uh, their 
um, perseverance in, in coming in every day and creating what I think is the best investigative journalism on, on television. So if you have, are looking or searching for any reason to support KQED, do it, even if it's just to support their support of, of frontline. And the thing that's, that's important about the work they're doing is, is that she is thinking, coming back to your earlier question about how do we bring young people into this is that she produces an extraordinary series on television broadcast, which has a very, uh, diverse audience in terms of age and, and in particular. Uh, but she's also producing specifically for, uh, platforms where, uh, young people, uh, are looking for content and information. And I think that, um, that kind of approach in both the quality of the storytelling itself and ensuring that it's reaching not just an older audience that happens to watch television, but making sure that those stories are connecting to people wherever they are is is profoundly important for our democracy. And just as a quick plug, uh, I do want to hear from KQED. Uh, For Sama is, I believe, still in theaters, which mm-hmm. is a frontline film uh, produced by a Syrian woman uh, from the mother's perspective of what it means to be in the war in Syria. So if you can support that film, please do. It's just, it's probably the best film you'll see all year, if not it, in the it, next it few won years. The, it won the major prize at Cannes. And uh, we're always, not that we judge our worth by prizes, but um, I think <laughs> it is... Uh, it certainly will give other films a run for the money for this year's Oscar. It is an extraordinarily powerful film. And the thing that is important about this film is that not only uh, does it give you a much deeper understanding of the circumstance in Syria, but the way that the filmmaker has chosen to tell the story will bring many more people into the story because it is a very powerful personal story. And I think that that is the mark of a, of a brilliant filmmaker in, in creating something that brings people in, even if they think they're not interested in a subject. For Sama. And it's out now, so go see it in the theaters and then watch it again when it's on KQED. Sama is her daughter, is her young daughter, and she has made this film for her. It's stunning. It truly is incredible. So talk about the investigative reporting, but I also hope you can touch upon the police reporting collaboration that you're doing as well. So so a couple of things. I mean, to be able to do investigative journalism, you need capacity. So we've touched upon the growth in KQED News. I'm going to mention her name. Um, Holly Kernan, again, because it wasn't just investigating the news, but how she organized and restructured our news department. It wasn't just news beats, but she said, we want to be the local authority in areas of needs. So she built multimedia desks focused on equity, science, politics, and government. A new desk we're building now, three-person desk, affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So you have ta- teams that can take the time and do the service journalism, depth, context, explanatory, right? And there's also an approach that I'm very proud of that, that, that we take to investigative journalism, and that is we tell stories of human experience. So a lot of our reporting the last several months has been on immigration, family separation, and, and at the border. And we did a very powerful story about a Guatemalan family Nazario, a father who was detained in San Diego, his daughter, Philomena, who was sent to New York, and they're separated, ultimately brought together in Guatemala City. But I tell that because the approach was not only revealing what's happening at the border, but contextualize the experience. Tell these stories of human experience to move people 
intellectually, and emotionally. I would say more broadly that our approach at KQED for the last several years for broader impact and systemic change has been all about collaboration, Mm -hmm. sharing resources, stories, pulling together collective muscle. And one of our most impactful investigative series was with Frontline. Mm -hmm. And the partners were Frontline, Univision, Center for Investigative Reporting, UC Berkeley Journalism School, and KQED. And we did a series of reports to reveal sexual assault of female migrant workers in the Central Valley and in packing plants. Multimedia reporting, video, audio, text, and a one-hour national documentary. And the result of that was passage of a state law for mandatory sexual harassment training of contractors, supervisors, and all labor workers. And you referred to a current project we have happening right now. Just this past January, the state passed a law releasing the files of police misconduct and use of force investigation, thousands of files. And we joined forces, collective muscle, more than 30 media outlets and work, working most closely with the LA Times and Bay Area News Group. And we're sharing story ideas, doing triage on the stories, focusing on police officers who might still be on the force. And we're not only coming together, but we're pooling resources in case we need to go to court mm. when unions try mm. to protect, keep mm. these files sealed. And ultimately, our goal is to build the statewide database of police misconduct files. I mean, talk about accountability and transparency. So really, when you need time and you need resources, our approach has been to come together and collaborate with mission-aligned media outlets for profit or or non-commercial. And and I would just second that. I I think KQED and public media generally, public media organizations are very good partners Mm -hmm. because other media don't perceive us as competitors Mm -hmm. in the same way they do each other because we're not out selling advertising. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so... And also, KQED has such a huge audience, and PBS and NPR have such broad reach throughout the country that great content that may be created by another organization that isn't consumer-facing has the opportunity to get their information out. So you'll hear and see stories from the Center for Investigative Reporting, Cal Matters. You'll see partnerships with newspapers, partnerships with television and radio stations that are outside the public media system that we're happy to collaborate with because you're right. Investigative reporting is very expensive and very time-consuming, and if we get together, we can we know can really accomplish something. And in the case of Rape in the Fields, which is the project that you're talking about, uh, you mentioned that one of the partners was Univision. What you didn't mention mm-hmm. is that the documentary was done in English and <laughs> Spanish, and it was broadcast simultaneously. That's right. Um, on both outlets. And so I think, again, this idea of, and you, you've referred to it beautifully as, you know, we are public service media. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, our imperative is different than selling advertising. Our imperative is to, is to try to serve the public. And so when you approach projects in that way, we, it does open up, uh, different opportunities for partners and it does give us the opportunity uh, to tackle projects in a different way. We just did a, uh, a project, 
um, that was produced in partnership with the Smithsonian uh, called When Whales Watched. And we broadcast, um, and it and it looks at um, at four species, and it traces um, it traces the evolution of those species back to dinosaurs, and then it looks forward uh, because I think again, as we look at opportunities to educate the public, we want the public to understand this trajectory that we have been on, but how that informs where we are destined to go and the options that we have around that. And we broadcast it together with Smithsonian on the same night. And they were happy to do that. We had to talk them into it. It, took a, it, it, was, a lot, it was a lot more complicated than what I'm just describing. But once they realized that actually we were not competing, that we were bringing great content to a much wider audience, all boats rise. And I think that it's different when you're in a commercial media organization and you're just sort of vying to be number one. This is really coming together where one and one actually equals three. I think Bill Moyers put that best. Uh, Many years ago at a PBS annual meeting, many years ago, (laughs) uh, Bill Moyers gave a a speech and he put it in, in a very simple phrase that other media serve you as consumers, public media serves you as citizens. Yeah. So that's a great and beautiful way to phrase it, but it puts you in an interesting position because now in this kind of collaborative world that we live in, you need to work with these non-commercial or these commercial entities, right? And so talk about some of those specific challenges of of being non-commercial but needing to exist in that landscape. Um, And this kind of leads to a question somebody had about who is supporting public media? Is tech supporting KQED Mm. here in Silicon Valley? You know, and how are you interfacing um, with those companies that um, are are, a big part of the community as well? Uh, but look, you know, wanting to just think about um, the commercial, non-commercial tension, I suppose. Well, look, we've already always, com- if, if you want to say, competed with uh, in a commercial. I mean, look, we we run very complex organizations, and we have to run them well. So there are the the difference between us and others is that we have a double bottom line. Mm-hmm. So we we manage very well run organizations, but we are also accountable to the mission and fulfilling that as well. And so when we partner with um, with uh, commercial organizations, yes, we both come at it at different ways. But I think that um, and obviously there are partnerships that we don't pursue because we can't you know sort of thread the needle. But remember, uh, most commercial organizations had at one time a public service obligation. So it's not as if they have not operated in the public interest. So if you dig down a little bit, that's there. And a lot of commercial organizations do have uh, their public service work. And so I think it's not always as complicated to make those alignments. But we do have interesting conversations when there is a pressure to, well, we'll just cut that corner. We'll just do that. And we always have to explain, no, we're public media. We have to make sure that the content that we're producing and showcasing does not cut that corner and that it is in concert with what the brand has, has always represented, which is, which is where the trust has been developed over the years. You can answer the tech question. Yeah. I I would say that, well, first of all, KQD's primary support comes from 
people who live in the Bay Area and use KQED service. We, we call it John viewers like you, and right. we say that. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so that's 60% of our support. 20% of our support. And, and obviously, there are people who work in the tech industry who are members of KQED and watch and listen and, and use our online services. So tech is there in that way. Only 20% of our support comes from the business community in the Bay Area, and some of those are tech companies. But I wouldn't say there's any tech company that is a dominant supporter. And then, of course, we work with the tech companies. We have, a, we have content on YouTube. We have content on TuneIn. We have content on iTunes. We have a couple million social media followers of KQED who are following KQED and learning about stories that are available uh, through Facebook and Instagram and, and other providers. So we very much have that relationship, but I wouldn't say that tech necessarily supports KQED in, in an overt way. I, I, I'll just, I'll just add <laughs> in, I, you know, they're not supporting public media as much as they can. I, you know, today, an article about Facebook talking about um, providing publishers licensing fees, right? New York Times, Washington, Post and I, I think that speaks to the value of our content. I, I don't mean to be skeptical, but there's a motive there, right? Because they want trusted, quality content on their platforms. Just to take a big step back, and we talked about us versus them in a, in a different context. But I've thought a lot about with the opportunity of digital, and and currently the the definition of public media is non-commercial, publicly funded, independent, broadcast media outlets that serve the civic and educational needs of society, right? But I don't think that pub public media is necessarily what you are, but it's what you do. And if we can think about that, and it may not be as complicated to find for-profit technology companies who actually believe that combining media, technology, and journalism for good is a viable, sustainable business. And it's an important thing to pursue because you never have enough resources, right? And we need to be everywhere where you want us. And our answer can't be, we're going to buy it or we're going to build it because that's not actually possible. Mm -hmm. And we don't have the expertise. So we need to think about mission aligned technology partners. It might not be money, but it might be platform, a platform or something they're investing in. And that goes the same for content, right? To bring new voices, new bloggers, podcasters, hyper-local citizen news sites or professional journalism sites with whom can we partner to think more broadly to get done what we need to get done in the public interest. So I really don't think about us versus them, but where, where are we aligned and, and we can come together for the benefit of, of our audience and society? I think it's impossible to talk about media right now without talking about diversity within our newsrooms, within our media makers. How are each of you, um, you know, focusing on bringing in new voices, uh, creating opportunities, having different perspectives and point of view, points of view? Well, I mean, for, for us, it's, it, it's fundamental. I mean, if we're a public media organization, we have to reflect the public. And, uh, I remember, uh, a few years back, uh, when, uh, we were working through, um, Jim Lehrer's retirement and, uh, and Jude, 
Judy Woodruff and Glenn Eiffel were named as the as the co-anchors of the News Hour. Um, they were the best two journalists, and um, as soon as they were announced, everything sort of lit up because it was like the first time two women. And I thought, really, really, in this age, the first time two women. And then I thought about it, yeah. And when you look at uh, News Hour today. Um, and it was hard to think about the news hour without thinking about Gwen. Um, you look at an extraordinary array of, of great journalists that, um, that I think are very reflective of, um, many different experiences. Um, we think about who's behind the camera. I think a big part of, of a lot of the choices that get made, um, are not so obvious. And I think having different people around the table, uh, and across the organization is really important. And I think it, it has to be purposeful and mindful. I've already described the, the success that we've just had with Molly of Denali. Um, I would be lying to you if I said, well, we started out and we knew this is how we were going to do it. But as we, as we got into the project, we realized that if we were going to, to build this new children's series and for it to be authentic, then it had to be, um, it had to be truly told by the people whose story was being told. And I think that if we are, um, if we hold ourselves accountable, uh, across the work that we're doing, then we'll achieve the diversity that I think is, is so important for who we are as an organization. But frankly, it is, it is not just a morally right thing to do from a business perspective. It is the right thing to do. I, I, I don't understand organizations that haven't yet figured out the fact that this is the way that we do business. And if we want to bring people to public broadcasting, then we need to have people build that content. And I want to build upon what Paula said about being very thoughtful and intentional about it. And this is going to be very tactical and operational because we've talked about not only diversity, but inclusivity within KQD. So just three example, our three examples are our, our hiring practices. Um, when we have an interview process, the final round, at least one has to be a diverse candidate, mm -hmm. forces you to take the time and cast a wider net. We used to just have non-paid internships for credit. Well, guess what? Especially in the Bay Area, n not everybody can take right. the time and afford to get there. So we've now switched to paid interns. And it's not just about attracting, but you want to be able to retain a diverse workforce. So we've actually established five employee resource resource groups, LGBTQ, um, the people of color resource group. And, and, and these are groups that have budgets to have events within the organization and to give the senior leadership team input on things that we can do differently in hiring language that we use using the appropriate pronouns with regards to gender identity and expression. So it, it really is, I mean, it really is bringing people in and making them part of your culture and hundred percent agree with Paula that we are stronger with more diverse ideas and diverse perspectives. And it's absolutely essential for us. We serve the most diverse region in the United States, and we really want KQED to reflect the community that we serve. And I think we've had a wonderful opportunity over the last several years, because when you grow a lot, you get to hire a lot more people, and you right. can put into right. practice the the methods that that Michael talked about. And we're also going through a generational change. A lot of old white guys like me are retiring and they're not being replaced by other old white guys. And so I think that 
that KQED now is so much more of a diverse place than when I arrived. And, and that's very, I'm very proud of that. It's, it's, it's a great, great accomplishment for the organization. So I, I knew that this hour would fly. I think this is something we can talk about public media for really for hours. And thank you all for your incredible work. I have one final question that I want to wrap up with, which is what can we as a public do to support all of you? How can we engage? Do we become members? Do we donate? Do we watch? What do you yes. want us to do yes. to make sure? <laughs> no, seriously, what do you want to, you know, what can we do to serious. make sure that you thrive? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, I, I didn't mean to leap on that, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the, but the point is, and you know, look, I think public public media, KQED, I think uh, my old station in New York, you know, we're like old friends. You know, we're in your home, we're always there. You flip it on, you you often don't think about it. Oh yeah, you try to remember when they're doing those pesky fundraising drives to <laughs> make a contribution. But the thing is, KQED exists because the people of this community built it. You've kept it strong. You have created a station that is a model for the rest of the country. We all benefit from it. Uh, a few minutes ago, um, maybe more than just a few minutes ago, Michael described the work the station is doing around media literacy, uh, which is important for all of us, but particularly for students and kids. That all comes because many people in this room and people in this community value the service and they write the check. If you don't do it, they won't be there. So that's profoundly important. This is also a station and that has a very rich um, tradition of volunteerism. Support, support them. If you can write a check, fantastic. If you can give a little bit of your time, fantastic. And unfortunately, we are in a cycle when funding is under threat. And if you do care about it, look, Congress has to make very difficult decisions. Um, funding is, is finite help them understand that this is a priority and let your congressman or congresswoman know of the importance of public media. If you do all those things, the station will stay strong for the future. I'll say something different, which I believe in my heart will lead to membership. And it's something that, that we're concerned about at KQED is, you know, John mentioned the, the Trump bump and you see audiences and even subscribers to, to newsletters starting to flatten mm. and you read surveys about people feeling hopeless about being able to make a difference and they just can't watch the news. So it looks like, feels like, smells like news fatigue. But what I worry about is it's actually disengagement. Mm. So stay engaged because democracy isn't voting every four years. It's participating on an ongoing basis in shaping the decisions, helping make the decisions on all levels, national, statewide, and local. And I believe if you stay engaged, you want the information, that it'll lead you right to KQED, because that's what we do. <laughs> and if we earn your trust, I believe we'll earn your support. All, all paths lead to KQED. <laughs> the, the only thing I would add, is there, there was a, a promo that, that we had when Paula and I were working together at PBS, and the, the final phrase of it was, this belongs to you. Yeah. Public media belongs to you. You own KQED. There are no other owners other than the people who live in this community. So I would just say own it. Yeah. Use it. Support it. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Stay engaged. But really just own it. You own KQED. It's your responsibility as much as it is ours. That's perfect. So I'm... 
So thank you, Paula Kerger, PBS CEO and President, Michael Isip, KQED President and CEO, and John Bolin, KQED President Emeritus. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. I want one of those hammers. <laughs> <laughs>